Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Andrew Kraus. I co-founded InventRight along with Stephen Key over 20 years ago, and we have been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since to license their products for royalties. So that's what we do. Uh, we teach people and guide people to license their products for royalties. So when you do that, it's your, it's their money, it's their workforce, and it's their existing distribution. So if they're in 30,000 stores, you're in 30,000 stores. You don't need to do all these things when you license, like start a business, raise money, manage employees. There's so many things that you have to do when you run a business that you don't need to do when you're licensing. So I want to remind everybody to, take, uh, to, to start typing their questions in to the uh, chat, and I'll go ahead and, and answer them. We're going to do a full hour. Um, it's a lot of time. And I will end at the end of the hour. I got some other stuff I got to take care of. But an hour is a really long time to do Q&A. And we've been doing this. I've been doing this every, it was every Wednesday. And then we changed it to Monday uh, for quite a while now during this pandemic. So hopefully you guys feel like, feel like it's helpful. Uh, I encourage you to watch other InventRight TV shows. I also encourage you to read some of our books. I would say the first book you should always get of ours is the yellow book, One Simple Idea. That gives our 10-step approach. And then you want to take it up a notch from there. You can do our academy group coaching or you can do our one-on-one -on -one personal coaching, either one. Um, so let's jump in and, and do some questions. Um, Saeed's asking a question. Hi, Andrew. I hope you're well. Stephen introduced video pitch. Uh, by Alden Miller. Would you tell us more about it? For which type of product is it necessary? Is it complimentary for bootcamp students? So Saeed, Video Pitch is something we literally just came out with last week. And it's a series of, of training videos on how to produce your own um, video sell sheets, if you want to call them that. So a short 30 to 60 seconds. Sometimes it's 10 or so. You always want to try it, keep it under 60. Sometimes it's occasionally you can do it under 90, but teach you how to make your own videos and how to set up that storyboard, what to think about, how to market yourself and your product on that video, more, more than likely your product, not yourself, um, how to market the product on the video. And um, he talks about all that stuff. So it's, it's really good. I'm looking forward to it. It's exciting. And um, you can take a look at that on our website. Uh, so uh, this one is from Levy. Can you license a product that you can't establish perceived ownership on? And is there any other way to establish perceived ownership other than a PPA? So I think Levy's been watching us for a while. And we talk about, Steve likes talking about it a lot, um, perceived ownership. So a provisional patent application isn't actually a patent. Um, so for $70, you can file what's called a provisional patent application. Attorneys always say, put that term at the end, because if you don't later file a full patent, you'll never get the rights the provisional gives you. But it gives you that placeholder, that perceived ownership for an entire year to see if anybody's interested. So that's a lot better than going out and spending $10,000 on a patent, not knowing if anybody's interested. So when uh, Levy's referring to perceived ownership, that's what we're talking about. And one method for getting perceived ownership is filing a provisional patent application for $70. So um, his first quest part of his question was, can you license the product that you can't establish perceived ownership with? And the, the answer is absolutely. Our students do it all the time, um, particularly like in the novelties category and many other categories. Sometimes companies, they just don't care about patents. 
And like, well, yeah, you came to us with this idea. Yes, of course, we'll pay you a royalty. And they're just fine with that. So companies range from we could care less about patents. Hey, if you want to file one, go ahead. We don't care. We'll still pay you the royalty. To being obsessed with you have to get the, you have to, we don't want to have to pay you if you don't get the patent. And not only that, you have to get these certain claims. Those are two extremes. Most of them are just somewhere in between. But plenty of companies will license products without a provisional patent or a patent. Happens all the time. And people have this great misperception. It's not based in fact. It's just based in a feeling on what people, why would they pay you if you didn't have a patent? Well, because not everybody's trying to screw you. I mean, that's why they'll pay you. Because um, not everybody's terrible because you came to them with a new idea. And if they get a reputation for just taking people's ideas, you, nobody's going to come back with any more ideas. Those are just a few reasons. So um, you can absolutely levy, license a product without perceived ownership, such as a provisional patent or a copyright or trademark or something else. So your other part of your question is, is there any other way to get uh, perceived ownership? So yeah, I mean, like on a board game, it doesn't apply to most ideas, but on a board game, the rules, copywriting the rules, and just you put little C on there, it's automatically copyrighted. Yeah, you can send it off the Library of Congress, but so copywriting something, um, trademarking something, maybe a little bit, but you know, you just put the little TM with a circle around it. You don't need to go blow a ton of money on a trademark all the time every time you come up with an idea, because a lot of times they don't want to name it the same thing you named it. Um, so. There are other ways of creating, I mean, I don't know, perceived ownership, but sometimes you're keeping, sometimes they look at your sell sheet or your video and they're like, oh yeah, I, I know how that would be done. Other times they're like, oh, that's a really good benefit, but you don't have the, they don't understand the backside of it. They got a lot of questions. So you can kind of keep that as a bit of a trade secret on how you're doing it. So that would be another way to create perceived ownership. So you can license products without any protection. You can, absolutely. Um, in some industries, it's harder than others. Um, in some industries, like the industry my business partner is in packaging, you will never in a million years license a packaging product without some sort of patentability. But in the novelty area, you license stuff all day long and they could care less about patents and they're definitely not paying for that patent. And, they'll be, and sometimes it doesn't make sense for you to either. So it depends on how much money the thing's gonna bring in, right? And then other ones, they're like, ah, yeah, we kind of like the window dressing, saying patent pending. Okay. So great question, Levy. Um, let's see. Uh, the Jazzy Show. Uh, you didn't put it. Oh, by the way, I want to remind everybody to type your name at the beginning so I'm not using your handles. Um, if you don't, I'll just use, I'll just call you Jazzy. Uh, for this next one. Is there a PPA in the UK also who helps with licensing agreements, contacts, contracts, term sheets, and writing your own PPA? So Jazzy, um, the, our, we've had students in over 65 countries and our students will simply file a US provisional patent application. People limit themselves to their own geography. It doesn't matter if in the UK they don't have a provisional patent like we have in the US, you just file a US provisional patent application and you're good to go. Um, then your other part, who helps with licensing agreements? We do. We have a negotiation coach helps our students through licensing agreements, contracts, term sheets, and writing your own PPA. We have software called Smart IP, but our coaches help our students with 
did you think about all the variations, workarounds, improvements? Because you can use the software, but if you don't put all the improvements and workarounds and variations, the version that's 80% as good or one that's just as good but not the version you're pitching, don't want to include one that's half as good because what that's not really competition, right? So don't get don't get obsessed with including every variation when they're not viable variations. That's just a waste of your time. Yes, you can throw everything in the kitchen sink in the provisional, but it's just not a good use of your time. Um, so yeah, we we help our students with licensing agreements, but you don't you don't get to a licensing agreement if you're not calling companies and doing and saying the right things to begin with, and that a regular licensing coach would help you with, and then you get into advanced negotiation, put you on a Pollard negotiation coach. That's for people that are students, of course. Um, you know, and one of the big things we teach our students with licensing agreements is the first thing you do is not a contract. Oh, you're interested. Okay, let's do a contract. That's not the way it works, guys. There's a lot of back and forth before you get to a contract. They want to get some quotes. You want to have discussions about different aspects of it, manufacturing of it. Um, all sorts of stuff. So I always say, that's the way I like to put it. This is even the way Paul, our negotiation coach, puts it, but this is the way I like to put it. There's two stages to a negotiation. There's initial interest to contract, and then there's contract to closed. And the initial interest to contract, way more important than the contract to close. Deals fall off from initial interest all the time. You got to do and say the right things there. So some people say, oh, I just need help with an agreement. When I get an agreement, I'm like, no, you need to do the right things to get from initial interest to the agreement. Really critical. And an attorney, a licensing attorney, is not that person. They suck at that. Um, now, maybe dot the I's and cross the T's at the end. When our students get to about 95% done, our negotiation coach will say to the student, look, you're 95%. This is good. Go back and forth this for a month, for a month or two. Just have a licensing attorney dot the I's and cross the T's. So you always want a licensing attorney reviewing a final contract but you don't want them going in there and mucking it up. Um, okay, uh, Jay said, InventRight tools are amazing. I think it's good to look back, um, though, at crazy successful products that made millions without tools. Why do you think Pet Rocks made millions for Gary Dahl? It's not really a good example. Um, I don't mind you asking it, Jason, but I grew up in Palo Alto and Mountain View, California, so um, they were in uh, Palo Alto, um, and I think he had, I think he was having like menti ch mentally challenged people, like put, which is pretty cool, putting together the boxes with the rock in it and stuff and assembling. So he enlisted the help of, um, employed some folks that way. And, uh, you know, that is what's called a fad. And to create a novelty product, fine, but to create a fad that's big like that, that's like a whole can of worms to try to do that. The, for the average inventor, I wouldn't try to do the new pet rock. I just invent something cool. People look out and go, oh, yeah, I need that. It has some sort of clear benefit. I wouldn't try to be the next pet rock because that's just weird. They, they sold a, for those of you who don't know, they sold a pet a rock in a box with some instructions, and it was your pet rock, and you put it on your desk at work, and it was like, God, I was in high school in 87, I think. I don't know. That was like mid-80s or so, right around there. I believe um, it was just a really you you shouldn't learn how to license from anomalies. That's a dangerous thing. That's the way most people make assumptions. Well, Uncle Joe liked my idea. He said I better get a patent on that, so I'll get a patent. You know, that's not that's a bad example. That's not an anomaly. But my advice is don't don't 
get advice from somebody that's done something once or twice. It could be an anomaly. It could be typical and normal, but you don't, you also like, you don't, this is a weird thing to say, but I like saying this. You don't learn how to get wealthy from like Steve Jobs or, um, or let's say uh, uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon. That's not, you don't, the rules that they're playing by at that level are completely different than you trying to get up to the next level. And they're not relevant and they're, they're anomalies. And that's not, you see, you, you, you're more likely, I'm giving a random example here, not talking about licensing, but let's say you want to learn how to be a successful business person. I'd rather you talk to the guy with the ice cream shop, the plumbing business, the consulting business, what have you. You will learn way more from them than learning lessons from a Steve Jobs or a Jeff Bezos, you know? Um, and they're down in the trenches. Maybe they've had four or five businesses. Maybe they've some, made some mistakes, some successes. And you'll learn more from those, not the anomalies, the bazillionaires. I, I, I don't like it when people use them as examples because I think it's not applicable and it's not good information half the time. I'll say it. Um, um, but that's me. I'm weird about that. Um, so... Jason, I don't think you're going to learn a lot from the pet rock. What I will say is it's very hard to create a fad. And I would never recommend an inventor try to create a fad on their first product. Um, that's not because if you anyway, it's just it's just a hard thing to pull off. Um, novelty, fun little gag, novelty gifts or novelty is fine. But to say, oh, this is going to be the next pet rock. And by the way, never say that because that just makes you sound crazy. Um, I, I, I think he has a lot of success. I think we, we've had him on. I think I interviewed him like 15 years ago. I don't remember. I think it's up somewhere up on our website. I've been doing this for so long. Um, okay. This is from Dexter. There's a product that could be sold to businesses in a different industry than the product is in. How do I approach this? Can I offer businesses in the other industry, a product that exists. So no, you, you, you can't yet. Yeah, yes. Yes, you can, but not like you're thinking. And you know, you can't say, well, this is my invention and it's being sold in stationary and you should sell it in construction or something, you know, and even my advice here, which is very specific advice, Dexter, even if that exact same product would work perfectly in another industry. I would always change it a little bit to give that perceived because they'll probably become aware of it in the industry that exists. And they'll be like, this guy didn't even change anything. So I'd create something talking about perceived ownership that tweaks it. Like, oh, you ask yourself, what's the difference from using this, this in this industry to using it over, can't see it over, over here in this industry? How would the product change? Would it change at all? Could you make it even better? So that when they look at your invention, they're like, oh, this is clever. And then they see the other thing in the other industry. Oh, but he he took it up a notch. You know, they're going to give you credit when going, dude, that already exists. Like, where's the invention? You know? Um, so always ask yourself, how is it different in the new industry? I would say 95% of the time, if you can't come up with something that improves it in some way, it's not really an invention. And you're going to have a hard time licensing it. Most of the time, you can. And it might be fine as is, but if you can make it even better, now that's something you're offering um, that is going to make it make sense for the company. Okay.
I've got I've gotten every question over the years, but I've gotten that one before. So I, I like that question. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Jazzy, how do I find companies that sell natural health products? It's it's it is suppliers and wholesalers. Is it just suppliers or wholesalers or just companies? Okay, so if you so it like any product, you want to go where the product is sold. So if you go to GNC or Whole Foods or where or online vitaminshop.com or buy vitamins from there or Amazon, find out where they buy these natural health products. It might be a supplement, might not, but let's just say it's a supplement. Um, you license to those manufacturers that sell to those retailers. So you find manufacturers that currently have distribution where you want to be. So look at the retailers where you want to be and then find the company selling there. It's just that simple. Um, next one is Jamie. My pillow has sold hundreds of millions of dollars of products. Why do you think such a simple product has been one of the biggest sellers in history of product sales with one man? Well, first off, I don't think one man did that. I think he has a whole team of people helping him. I don't know the complete story of, of the MyPillow guy. I, I haven't bothered, um, don't really care. Um, but, uh, you know, he has been very, very successful. And, and my assessment is um, he's identified, and now you see tons of people um, inventing Pillow stuff. It was kind of a sleeping dinosaur. And he came in before other people were really getting it fixed up. And he did good marketing. He knows how to do good marketing to address people's concerns. He was addressing, I think, like older people with his marketing. He was on certain networks and doing it in a certain way, probably getting the price down and all that. And he just seems like a super driven individual. Um, so, uh, you know, I would say that it's because he kind of revived a sleeping dinosaur, as we say. And it's not that other people weren't doing pillows before him, other versions, but he kind of blew it up. And now everybody and their grandmother is doing a pillow, which is great because everybody sleeps. Everybody has a head, everybody sleeps, and everybody needs one, and everybody could use a better one probably. Um, you might be happy with yours now, but a lot of people aren't. So that's the reason why I think he's so successful. Um when writing a PPA, is there any way to cover all the possible descriptions easily? Color, size, material. Well, a color has no functionality, so that won't do you any good in a PPA anyway. Unless it has functionality, you, you wouldn't cover it. If the size was functional at different sizes, yes, then maybe. You can mention different materials. There's certain wording you can use. You can say, could be made out of this and this and this, but not limited to these materials. You do what I call patent attorney weasel words. It can be done like this or this, but not limited to these methods. You don't want to box yourself in. You can be narrow, as they say in patent talk, but you also want to broaden it out. You don't want to say it's a purple. This is a silly example. A purple pencil with pink polka dots, exactly 2.5 millimeters in diameter. Well, first of all, you can't patent cover colors like I just said. So that it's just a silly example. But you make a 2.6 millimeters. Okay, now they get right around you. So you can be specific, but then you have to broaden it out so it's not just that one specific thing. Um, you can use our software, the Smart IP software, to file a provisional patent to, and you can find that on the inventright.com website. Um, let's see. I lost my train, my place here. Okay. 
Uh, Keaton, if a company asks for a proof of concept or how to make it, does that mean that the product does that does it mean that need the product ready for manufacture? So if a company asks for a proof of concept, is a 3D model proof of concept? It, dep it depends. Everybody has a different concept what proof of concept is. It could be a 3D model. It could be a crude prototype made out of duct tape. Everybody has a different perception there. So, you know, sometimes students will say, well, you know, I'm not sure what the company means by this. And, and what do you think, Andrew? And I look and I'm like, I don't know either. Why don't you ask them? <laughs> so you can ask them. So um, what you want to do, Keaton, is have a marketing piece that is going to address the benefit of the product. You're always selling the benefit of the product. Any sort of model or a 3D model or a prototype or whatever, it's just a side note, okay? You might have made a prototype. Looks beautiful, falls apart when you touch it, doesn't even work, but it looks beautiful, take a picture of it. You might get a 3D rendering done of it so they can visualize what it's what it looks like. Um, you know, you might have this working prototype, but it looks terrible. And you're like, oh, I got to do a 3D rendering of that because I can't show them a picture of that. It's too distracting. But when they ask me, they want proof of concept. If that's what they mean, a working prototype, then, but everyone means something different when they say that. Then you, maybe you can send them that crude one. Go, this is really crude, but it works. You know, and they're like, oh, great. You know, so let's say it's a dog toy. And then they play with a couple dogs with it. And they're like, wow, this is great. You know, so um, proof of concept can mean a lot of different things to different people. Um, for us, a lot of times it just means a, a cell sheet um, along with a 3D rendering or a picture if you had, if you're able to put something together that looks decent. Um, you, you expanded on it. What kind of proof of concept will they want to see? Is it ready for manufacturing? Material, functional, mechanical, every company is different. So here's the thing. For you to go out and spend 5000 on a prototype, not knowing if there's any interest yet in the benefit of the product, which you can get with a sell sheet or a video sell sheet, why would you spend that kind of money? Most of the time, it's not worth it. You want to go fishing, get the interest. They're not going to yell at you. You don't have a production-ready, beautiful prototype. Well, why do you waste my time? Screw off. I've never had a company ever say that to one of our students. So if they want that, and it takes you two, three months to get that together, great. But maybe you have a conversation with them and you're like, well, it's kind of like this thing over here. I changed this. They're like, oh, okay, that gives us enough. We can get some quotes now from a manufacturer, a manufacturer too. That's enough. So you have a conversation about what they're looking for. You don't just reply to an email. You always get on the phone with them. So this is a great question. Thank you, Keaton. Um, Daniel said, what happened to your sweepstakes winners? I don't, I don't know what sweepstakes you're talking about. We've had a few contests or giveaways. Um, I think, you know, we had, um, we had uh, one of our uh, a gentleman, Kirk, who was at the Michigan Inventors Conference, and he won, which this is extremely rare that we do this, an entire InventRight course. And he's since licensed one and going on two products now. He's licensed a third one, I'm not sure. And now he's one of our coaches. He did so well. 
we we brought him on as one of our coaches. So there's one story for somebody that was one of our winners and, and won an entire InventRight coaching package at the Michigan Inventors Conference. So that's a cool success story. Um, is uh, Jazzy says, is reading the book and watching your YouTube show enough to license successfully without going um, on the course and getting the one-on-one coaching? Um, I have a lot of people that watch our show and have read our books and it's few and far between compared to our coaching students. Um, people get hung up. Like we give tons of information away for free. Without the hand-holding, it doesn't seem to be enough. I'll tell you a little bit of a story. Um, when we started almost going on 21 years now, I need to look up when this 21 is our anniversary date for the company. Um, Steve and I did live seminars at Silicon Valley. And this, we we're just doing local. We hadn't branched out, hadn't had 65, you know, students in 65 countries around the world or anything at that point. And um, we would do live seminars all day Saturday, all day Sunday. It was grueling, like eight hours each day. And people were like, oh, my God, you guys are the greatest. I finally get this stuff. And, and we had this really nice cult following that just, that's a word, bad word to use, but you get the idea. They just loved us. And most people would have been happy there. Wow, everybody loves us. They love the information we're giving away. But I started checking in with people. And I'm like, Steve, people aren't taking enough action and they aren't doing deals. And I'm not into that. And I said, I think I should be our first coach. And I think we should coach people. I think they need the handholding. Stephen was like, oh, I, I don't know, man. That's, I don't know. I, we've, you haven't done that before. We just do these live seminars and we give a great information. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna, well, let's do it. And he's like, okay, let's, let's do it. That's when people started licensing products. And this was many, many, many years ago. And now we got 10 coaches, a negotiation coach, had students in over 65 countries. But that's what gets people to take action because you'll continually get stuck. So do I believe that you can just watch our show? And do we give tons of information of free and read our books and possibly do it? Yes. But without, you're not going to get somebody saying, oh, for this product, here's the companies I would go after, this type of company. Oh, they said that? Like you can't look at a book and say, hey, the company said this. What do I say back? You know, with, with the coach, you can go, hey, forward them an email. Go, I don't know what to say to that. And so all that stuff, and a lot more moves people along. And just information doesn't seem to be enough, no matter how great it is. Even in our book, One Simple Idea, it goes step by step by step. But so Jazzy, I would say, why not give it a shot? What do you have to lose? You know, and if you're struggling with it, you could always join. But if you're like, you know, thin financially, or what have you, give it a shot. You know, um, what is it? Because you don't have a coach, some company will steal your idea or something? I don't think so. You, you're going to be studying our stuff. So hopefully you don't say crazy stuff that pisses the company off. You know, I, I don't think most people will, but there's just a lot of places to get hung up. And when you say for your product, this is what you need to do. It seems to make all the difference. And we meet with our students every week for half a year, every week. We're brainwashing you. We're, we're, we're guiding you and you're getting that real life experience. Everything we do is experiential learning. And what we found is without experiential learning, it doesn't work for the average creative person. Even people that are former marketing executives, you know, they're, they're, they're maybe good at marketing, but they're not good at this. And sometimes they're arrogant. Like, oh, I know what I'm doing. And we get a housewife and she's kicking butt from some retired CEO because he's like, well, I know what I'm doing. And he's like, no, you don't. This licensing is different. So there's some random thoughts, Jazzy. Hopefully that's helpful. But we, we never hold back. 
really on information. We give a lot of information away for free. I'm doing a whole hour during this whole pandemic. I've been doing a whole hour of Q and A every every week. I think it took a break one week, two weeks ago, or something like that. That was it. Um, let's see. I don't know the name, but I'm assuming it's like Alex. It's with a three. If two or three companies want to license my idea, am I able to license it to all three companies, or do I have to pick one? If we don't give the company an exclusive, can we license it to other companies? So I get these quite often on the Q&As. It doesn't make sense. This is an easy way to think about it, guys. It doesn't make sense to license to two or three companies selling the exact same shelf at Walmart. Makes no sense, right? They're both going to have their three products on there, all with your feature, and now one company doesn't have any edge at all, anything unique over the other two. It ain't going to work. Now, if they're distributing in different distribution channels, maybe this one company is in Walmart and they're on in a certain distribution channel, but you have another version of the product that's be sold at 7-Elevens. It's like a product, one that's like one third the price and cheap and cheesy. And then you got another version that's better. There's a million ways you can go about that. But the rule is, the easy rule to remember is if they're not stepping on each other's toes, yes, multiple licenses can make sense. Break it out by geography, by a slightly different product, by a different distribution channel where they're not stepping on each other's toes. These are all different things that you can do to do multiple licensing deals with the same product. Now, here's the misperception. I always joke that you can have delusions of grandeur when you're licensing and you're not delusional because these companies are huge, some of them. Maybe they can do 20,000, 50,000, half a million, two million. It all depends on the product, what's relevant there, right? It varies by the product. But they can blow it out huge. So you should be extremely happy with one company and they want the freaking exclusive. All right. So this perception that if you license it to three companies, you will make more money is an incorrect perception. Because why would that big company want another company then knock them off? Right. They want an exclusive. But if they're your, if you're like, let's say it's selling it's some medical supply, it, it could be sold at Walmart, but you got a different version of it that would be sold and offered to patients in hospitals. And the company's like, yeah, we don't care about that. That's not our market. We don't even sell to hospitals. And you got this different version. We're fine with that. So they may well, they may well be fine. But don't think that licensing the more companies means more money. You can license the three rinky-dink companies or one big-ass company. You see the difference? So that's, that's the difference. But I love that question, Alex. That was a really great question. Um, and we do get that one pretty frequently. See, and so Jazz, Jazz, you know, when I can answer that question and Alex is like, oh, okay, good. Now I get that. But there's always another question, another question, another question. And these are just questions. But when, and these lingering questions keep people from moving forward. And even more so like, well, that's great. A a Andrew answered a bunch of questions. I really feel like I'm getting this licensing thing. I'm watching their YouTube show and you're trying to fit all this in your brain. But when you get on with the coach and they say, oh, for that product, I would go here and you're, you're asking the coach why. And they're specifically explaining why in the context of your project, that's something we could never do on a YouTube show. We could never do on a live chat. We could never do in a book. But it's incredibly invaluable. Inval you know, it's kind of like it's kind of like watching videos about how to play football and reading books about it, but not actually playing. And so we're the field. Well, the, the market's the field, and you got a coach, and they're watching you throw it, and they're 
They're watching you throw up before you get into the game. So the companies don't think you don't know what you're doing. And it doesn't matter if your coach does. That's great. Oh, well, fix it. Throw it better like this. Okay, then we got the game on Monday. You'll be ready. You know, that sort of thing. That's a, that's a funny way to put it. But, but it's true. Um, Gray, what happens in the event you file a PPA and later you license your licensee discovers there is something already patented similar to it, similar enough to cause legal issues. Yeah, so sometimes the licensee will do what is called indemnification. And quite often it will go both ways. So there's an indemnification clause in the contract. Not always, um, quite often not, but a good percentage of the time there is. And what they're saying in there is, hey, if somebody comes and sues us for patent infringement, we're you know, it's on you. Now, it's, sometimes it's like, really? I'm just a little guy. You know, and so that's why it's good when you're in the midst of doing a licensing deal to go back and do some more prior searching, see if there's any conflicts at that point. To do an in-depth, expensive patent search when you don't know if anybody's interested, you don't always want to do that, although that can be beneficial as well. But it's so even more so, Gray, they might hold you to it. There's indemnification that, um, that you're indemnifying them from any other uh, patent infringement. But what I can, this is what I can say. In 20 years we've been doing this, we've never, ever even had a hint of that ever happening. It could, though. It could. But so then what's normal and what happens often? Quite often when you license to a company, they kind of know what else is in the market. Now, uh, some obscure patent, that may not be in the market. So I would do a deep down search um, you know, before you sign a licensing contract. Now, the other part, they'll indemnify you. Let's say they have a ladder and somebody slips and falls on the ladder and you're going to you're gonna indemnify you from any liability there whatsoever. So it's a, it goes both ways. But people worry about that all the time, Gray, and I've literally never seen it happen once. But it could. And so it's good to know about the indemnification clause. Uh, let's see. KH says, uh, what are my risks if I shipped my product to a Chinese manufacturer of storage cases? I don't know what storage case is, but so that they can make the foam insert fit perfectly, they will sign an NDA, but that is not enforceable. Um, I don't know, KH, like why are you sending this to a Chinese manufacturer to begin with? They're not going to be your licensee. 99 times out of 100. We did have one student. He licensed a, um, he was an Israeli student, an entire toilet to a Chinese toilet manufacturer, but they were already in um, Home Depot. And then we had another French Canadian guy licensed to a Chinese manufacturer, like within a couple months of the other one. And they had a, they launched a whole new line of camping products. But besides those two companies, I think there's only two companies in the history of InventRight that are students licensed to a Chinese manufacturer. But in those two cases, both those companies had distribution in the U.S. They were just like any other licensee. But my question is, why can't you make a foam insert that inserts into a case? It seems pretty simple. Um, so you're right. You know, you could send that over there. And then that company you're licensing to, you're just saying, make me a prototype, I guess, um, and give me a quote. Is there somebody else you can get to do that? And so um, they could take that design and start offering to other people. Maybe they know what it is. Maybe you don't even tell them what it's for. And they're like, we don't know what this thing is, but you give them the dimensions so it fits. But if you give them the product and you say, I need it to fit in this piece of foam 
that's going to go in this case and they're going to know what the product and know what it is. And so they could just start offering it to some manufacturer um, to say, hey, you know, this, do you want to sell this? You know, this sort of thing. So that is a possibility. I'd say you need to be careful about that. Um, Betty says, my question is, can, can, is can add future on my existence? You guys type, spend some time typing this stuff out. My question is, can add future on my existence licensed product and license for a new company? I don't know, Betty. You need to retype that. And I, I, I'm just going to speculate. Please uh, retype that, Betty, so it's a coherent sentence and I'll answer it. Um, JB did a utility patent 20 years ago, was told it was patent pending, so I contacted many companies. My invention was on the market exactly as I submitted it, and my invention is in many stores still, exclamation mark. Found, found out the end page on the end patent did not match other pages' description. I know it's way too late, but just have to know was there something I could do after they put it on the market? Well, I don't know who they is, JB, but I, I get people all the time that suspect that a company sold their idea. And usually just by talking to them for a few minutes, I can discern the facts. And I'm like, nobody stole your idea, dude. I, like I give this example before, like I had this person that said, oh, this company came out with this product and it's what I showed them. And I said, well, how long ago did you show it to them? Oh, it was about two and a half weeks ago. I'm like, dude, no company can come out with a product in two and a half weeks. They didn't steal your idea. They had the same idea. So, JB, the question is, just because you did a utility patent, um, you know, most people aren't digging around with utility patents, but you said you contacted many companies. Okay, so you reached out. And But my question is, uh, JB, um, is one of the companies you contacted the one that is now out with the product? But you did this patent 20 years ago, so I don't know how old all this stuff is. Um, you know, is it one of the ones you approached? And if so, you should have a very thorough paper trail. So now I, your patent is probably now public domain and expired. So did they wait? Did is it after your patent expired? I don't have all these details. Um, but, you you know, a big part of your protection is creating a paper trail. You have to be very careful about saying anything to a company and accusing them of stealing your idea. Anything you ever send to a, a manufacturer that you think stole your idea, that needs to be carefully crafted by a patent attorney because you can get yourself in big trouble there. Then you start a legal battle, which you might not want to, JB. So, you know, I, I don't know. I've talked to a few inventors, JB, where um, usually it's inventors that didn't, this isn't a, a rib on you at all. Usually inventors that don't know what they're doing. And then the marketing manager sees they don't know what they're doing and go, and it's like that three, four percent, three or four percent of companies that marketing manager says to the boss, like, yeah, this inventor doesn't know what they're doing. We just go ahead and do it. And then they do it, you know, or it was just coincidence. You know, I don't have the timelines. And so it might have happened, but you have that paper trail. So I don't know why you wouldn't go back to them. But if it sounds like it's all said and done, so it sounds like you need to leave it behind you. I don't know if they're selling it now. 
or when they were selling it or when your patent ran out or even if it ran out. There's too many details there. But, um, you know, if you really feel like you have a leg to stand on, then talk to an attorney and figure it out, you know. But it sounds like it was in the past. So I just moved forward and realized that it, that kind of thing happens very rarely. People think it happens often. And to be honest, you know, if you don't ever show your product to anybody, you ripped yourself off. And that's most inventors. Most inventors, they don't get ripped off by companies. They rip themselves off out of their own fears. So good for you for, for pushing it out there, JB. And, um, and you should probably kind of, kind of figure out what those timelines are. You probably already know. But this isn't the right forum for that. Um, Dexter, just want to say a huge thank you, Andrew. You make the world better by encouraging inventors and their inventions. Thank you. I ran my inventors group for 14 years. That's where I met my business partner, Stephen. We started InventRight. And after 20 years of doing an InventRight, I did my inventor association for 14. I'm still passionate about it, you know, and that's pretty cool. And so I'm proud of that. And it, it, it people tell us great things about us like every day, a couple times a day, but I never get tired of hearing it. Kind of gives us fuel. So thank you, Dexter. That's very nice of you. Keep, give us fuel to keep going, especially to do free stuff like this. When I know you guys appreciate it, it just makes me want to do do more. Okay. Um, Mihiro, Mihiro, uh, probably not pronouncing that right. I have a prototype and a sell sheet, but no company contact. Does InventRight sell these contact, this contact information? No, we, we, when our coaches mentor you, we guide you to make your list that's just right for your company. It's a methodology. It's a skill that you need to learn, and it's not rocket science. And the coach walks you through it. So, and, and I've never had a student with a coach walking them through it where they couldn't make their own list. But it requires a little bit of work. Kind of time-consuming. It can take anywhere from 2 to 10 hours to do. If any inventor out there is saying, oh, my God, 10 hours? Well, then you, you should walk away right now because 10 hours to make your list of potential licensees, for instance, let's say 30. Now you have 30 potential licensees, 30 potential chances for success. The amount of time you need to spend to run your own business is nothing. And, and normally it doesn't take 10 hours. A lot of times you can finish it in like five or six. It's kind of fun. So I encourage you to do it, Mihiro. And if you need help, one of our coaches can help you do that. But this perception that somebody's going to hand you a list is just, it's just garbage. Don't, don't, don't think. And these invention promotion companies cater to that person. Oh, we have the contacts. We'll use our contacts, you know. And it's, it's, it's a lot of BS. Um, uh, the KH says, I have a company, had a telemeeting with me. Oh, that's great. And says they have interest in maybe a licensing agreement. Good discussion, but it's been a week and have not heard anything from them. Is it too long of a time? No, KH, a week is freaking nothing. Um, but if you didn't set up action steps, here's the one big thing that might shock a lot of you, which is going to be really helpful. Deals are not dependent on them moving it forward. They're dependent on you moving it forward. This is something extra for them. You need to know how to keep licensing deals moving forward. A week is nothing. And KH, if you got off that meeting and there weren't action steps, you didn't do it right. And you need to give action steps, but no big deal. You know, it sounds like you had a good meeting and you can follow up with them and say, what are the next steps? But a lot of times they don't know what the next steps are. So you need to kind of guide them. And so you start to ask questions this way or that way or have another discussion. I don't know what you discussed on that meeting. 
you probably didn't discuss all the stuff that I would have told you to discuss. Um, but uh, a week, that, I think that's a decent, you don't want to reach out the next day. We reach out next week. What's your process? What's the next steps? And see what they say. A lot of times they don't know what to say. Um, because the marketing manager is not, not like taking on new products every day. Maybe somebody else in the company knows what the next step is. Do not expect them to guide you. They will not guide you. 80% of the deals you get into will die if you don't know how to help them to guide it. You're not being pushy. You're not being bossy. You're subtly guiding them. It's absolutely essential. That's the key thing that our negotiation coach Paul does, not the contracts. That's way more important than the contract, guys. There's this mass misperception. So I'm so happy that we can get on to these live Q&A sessions and I can say stuff like that because almost every inventor when they're new to it, is not in the right mindset when it comes to that. So KH, move forward. You can get our help if you want us to uh, to help you or a negotiation coach help you move through it. But Or you can get back to them and do it yourself, but you have to move it forward. Um, and don't be a pest. You need no one to lay back too. Oh, they're getting some quotes in China. Okay, I'm going to lay back. How long that will take? Oh, two, three weeks? Okay. And you literally don't talk to them for two, three weeks. It's normal. Um. Uh, Tommy says, how do you know when you give up on, to give up on your product? I've called over 30 companies. I've had a few companies. Uh, I have a few companies left to get back to me. If they all say no, do, do I give up on it? I believe I have a great product. No. Um, so first off, it sounds like you're doing a pretty good job that they're getting back to you. You said I have a few companies left to get back to me. So you're doing great. A lot of times people will reach out once so they can get back to me. It sounds like you probably reached out to a lot of them multiple times for that many, for a bunch of them to get back to you out of 30 and you still got some left. Some things you can do is ask them, you know, it's all in how you frame rejection. So if you ask every company, like, can you give me some feedback? Like I realize it's not right match for you. Can you give me some feedback? Was the product easy to understand in the sell sheet? Any other issues? Can you, can you, write a sentence or two on any feedback you think would be helpful because I'm going to continue to pursue this. And let's say one in five, you have 30, let's say 25 have gotten back to you. If you ask all 25 and only five of the 25, only one in five get back to you with some solid advice, you might realize just random stuff I'm going to make up here. You might realize your marketing presentation sucks. Oh, uh, you know, we didn't, I didn't really, didn't really, um, wasn't feeling it. You know, I don't know what the benefit of this thing is, you know? So getting feedback is critical and then making an adjustment. And when that happens, go back out to everybody, you know? Now, another thing you can do with your fixed version, oh, I realize there was some confusion, you know, marketing, marketing wasn't spot on. Can you take, can you give us another 30 seconds? Take a look at it again. Um, now also you should not put that project in the garbage can. You should put it you know, one you get once you get nose from all thirty because you're not done till you get nose from all thirty. Put it in the uh, in the closet for six months, eight months. Reach out to all the same companies, all the same people, and our students have licensed products all the time that way. So you'll get another person that they they gave you a non-specific, not a right match, not at this time. They didn't give you any specifics. You didn't really engage with them, and then you hit them up with the same product they said no to eight months earlier, six months earlier, 
And now you just got lucky. Two weeks earlier, their boss said, we need new products. Now they're actually looking at your product where before they were inundated with their business. Do not assume everybody gave it a thorough look. They're too busy. Uh, you know, I got these three bosses. They're all giving me these projects. I don't have time for this. Uh, not, not at this time. No, thank you. I got, I got 100, 300 emails I got to do today. You know, there are various reasons and you will never know what they are why people will say no, but you reach back out six or eight months later. Maybe if you need to spruce up your marketing presentation, great. 95% of our new students that come on board, which are probably a little bit more on the mark than the average inventor, just that they decided to sign up before they even talk to a coach. 95% of the time, their marketing presentations are not good enough. 95% of the time. Sometimes they're okay, Eh, but it needs improvement. Sometimes they're a lot of times they're terrible. A lot of times people don't have them yet as well. But so you have to ask yourself, is my marketing good? And from what I've seen from the average inventor, the answer is 95% of the time, no, your marketing sucks. Or your marketing's just so so. And people don't really want to buy so so. You know, or it's like the product's good, but it's like a little confusing. They're like having to think. You're making them think. If they don't get it in six seconds, you're toast. If your sales sheet or your video doesn't accomplish that, if you have the video, if you don't lose them in the first 10, 15 seconds, they watch the whole video, you're good. But for a sales sheet, if they don't get it for six seconds, and most people don't understand that. And it does just, this, the marketing presentation isn't making sense. So um, Tommy, I would keep going till you get no's from all 30. And then I would hold off for maybe six months and then resubmit it to everybody. Yes, the ones that said no. You know, absolutely, because it doesn't sound like you got a solid reason why you would not do that if five companies said, well, this product's going to we're going to have to sell this thing for fifty nine bucks. And we know people won't pay more than nineteen ninety five for this. And five companies tell you that you are done with that project unless you can fix that problem. But most of the time what happens, this is good for everybody else listening. You get very nonspecific no's. And that's not a solid no forever. It might be a, oh, you were busy. You didn't have time to deal with it. And now if I send it to you later and you're in the right mood, now you're going to show interest and you might license it. Happens all the time. Um, uh, Rob says, can I find a company on LinkedIn to license a product I came up with for detailing cars like Pep Boys or AutoZone? So, Rob, you're a little confused. So you don't find companies on, on LinkedIn. You find companies by doing your research and then you reach out to them on LinkedIn, okay? And Pep Boys and AutoZone are retailers, not manufacturers that sell at retailers. Now, if they do their own house brand, then you could license to them. But most of the time, they're just trying to reduce costs on generic stuff. Um, so they're not um, the, the, the AutoZone or Pep Boys version is just reducing costs. They're not innovating. It's the other companies that are innovating that sell in their store if that makes sense. Um, Michael says, hello, Andrew. Great live chat. Thank you, Michael. Um, okay, uh, Dynamo. Dynamo, like the name. What percentage is a standard percentage to get for a licensing a product? Is it revenue or margin? Thanks so much uh, for this, Andrew. Appreciate your help. So it's, so as, as I always say on these, because we get a similar question almost every time, it's not just the royalty rate. It's the royalty rate when you're trying to figure out how much you're going to make, the volume they're going to sell, and the price of the product. 
So is it $59? Is it $19? Is it $500? Like, you know, it's relevant because it's $500. Maybe they're not going to sell half a million, but if it's 99 cents, maybe they're selling 2 million, you know, or something like that. Maybe they're selling 10,000. It's all relative to the volume they can sell, which is you get from interviewing with them and discussing and talking and looking at the market. So people go, what's a good royalty rate? And I'm like, you know, quite often 5% is quoted. And it's the most common settling point. But do not bring that up in a negotiation. That's just stupid. Um, you, you you know, they might bring it up first and go eight, you know, so don't bring that up. Well, I heard Andrew say five, so I'll say five. Well, even if you want five, you might want to ask for six or seven. But you need to determine if you even want to do this deal. Now, if you're finding companies that are in major retailers, you probably want to. But you need to determine what they're going to commit to. And so are they going to sell 10,000 units a year, 50,000, 200,000? How many units are they selling? Because if they sell 100 units and you get a 5% royalty, you're not going to be very happy with those royalty checks. They sell half a million units at 5%, but you might be okay with 2% because they're selling 3 million units or whatever it is. But this, those are the three components, the royalty rate, the price of the product, and the volume being sold. So on the, on the royalty rate, quite often that's on the wholesale price to get back to your question, Dynamo. So it's the price they sell to the retailer for, which as a standard rule of thumb, just to ballpark it, don't quote me on it, it's typically half of the retail. So if the product's selling for 20 bucks, it's probably wholesaling, the manufacturer's selling it to Walmart for 10. So you'd be getting that royalty rate on that, on that $10. That's the most common. Um, but, you know, it could be 10%, could be 8%. You might be very happy with 3% because they're going to sell crazy volume and you're going to hold them to it in the contract. So you calculate it using those three numbers, the royalty rate, the volume being sold, and the price of the product, and you look at how much money you would earn if they sold 100,000 units, 50,000, 20,000, 10,000, 5,000, okay? And you hold them to certain numbers through interviewing them, like, like our negotiation coach would guide you to do with the company. Um, Jack says, hello, thank you for all the great info. You're welcome, Jack. Um, Jeff, I have a safety device that addresses something that shows up in the news occasionally. Is it okay to send a news article to a potential licensee when I just spoke with them a few days ago? Yeah. Yeah. I, I usually, I think it's fine. Yeah. I think it's absolutely fine. Um, they, you want them to use their gut like, Oh, that product makes sense. I know there's this and this and this in the marketplace and that product makes sense. But if you need to support it with a, a news article that there's a lot of people are complaining about this, yeah, I think that's fantastic. That's a great idea, Jeff. Why not? Um, Tommy says, if a company has your prototype, what is the best thing you can say to keep the licensing deal move forward? Well, I'll give a tip to everybody. Don't give them the prototype early on if you have one get the conversation going before you do that. People are so excited. It, it's, it's a bartering chip to get all sorts of info from them before you give it up to them if you have one. Um, but maybe you, you did that already, Tommy. So how, do, how is it, what's the best way to keep it moving forward? Uh, it's, it depends on what the dynamic is, what they said, what you said. It's very specific, Tommy. I can't give a general answer there but you do want to keep it moving forward. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, you know, it's really going to be depend on what they said before. I don't want to give you some advice and then you go off in the wrong direction because I don't know what your negotiation situation is. Um, it's very specific. That's more dicey. That's why we have a negotiation coach um, spe specializing that. We have a specialist um, at that point. Uh, Keaton says, why do inventors need a licensing attorney? Do you have a licensing attorney recommendation? And what are their, what is their price range? With our students, we recommend only seeing a licensing attorney while you're with us when a deal is 95% done and also when you're on your own. If we can train you to talk to companies, negotiate all these deal points, and do the same thing you do when you're with us, only hire a licensing attorney to dot the I's and cross the T's when a deal is 95%, and that's very low risk and it's very affordable. It's not that you're trying to just save the money with the licensing attorney, although you could easily spend three or four grand with a licensing attorney, easy, which is like we, which is more than we charge for six months of help with everything. So, um, and that's why we want you to talk with the company, go back and forth. You know, licensing attorneys will go in there and they'll try to go, well, I'm fighting for you. They'll piss the company off. They'll still send you a bill and you got this bill and you got this dead deal and you go, what happened? And so at InventRight, our whole thing is making licensing um, cost effective so you can do this forever, but not being so cheap that you'd ever hurt yourself. But we believe that you are better at just talking with the company than getting two licensing attorneys butting heads. Most of the time, they don't even have a licensing attorney. It's a general counsel and they're stupid. They don't understand licensing. And then your guy's going, well, I'm going to fight for you. And, you know, you're not even done negotiating the contract yet. And even when you get there, they'll fight over stupid stuff. So we empower our students to do those, to, to talk to companies. When you're with us, our negotiation coach, Paul, is helping with every little detail. And I always explain, we're basically doing the deal for you, but you're the mouthpiece. You're the one that's going to get back to them via email or get back to them uh, via the phone. We're guiding you as to what to do. Uh, and then once you've done that, you're going to know how to do that. You're going to know all the base deal points and things to say in different situations. And so you can become empowered to then also only contact a licensing attorney when a deal is 95% done. Licensing attorneys are deal killers. They're not deal closers. Um, and so it's not that I'm trying to save you guys just the money. I'm trying to save you from killing your deal by getting a licensing attorney involved. Do you want a licensing attorney to dot the I's and cross the T's on a final contract? Absolutely every time because they'll find stuff you missed. Oh, you got to change this one word. You got to change this one sentence. But all the major negotiation points, you guys can do that yourselves in the future. And when people are new with us, a coach can guide you on it. Um, but don't just go, oh, I'm in a deal. I'll get a licensing attorney to close it for me. That's a recipe for disaster most of the time. Uh, let's see. Uh, Dong says, I, I heard royalty licensing percentage, only 5% of net profit, which turns out might be very, very low. Is that true? Um, no, it's, it's, no, you, you got to define net. Every time we negotiate a contract, Paul and the student is defining net and you have to find net. If you don't define net, they can just remove all sorts of costs that are ridiculous. But for the most part, with the exception of a few things, it's on the wholesale price, the wholesale price that the manufacturer sells the retailer because it's very easy to track. 
Now, if there's go backs, like uh, man, the retailer sends them back, like not getting a royalty on that, perfectly acceptable. When they start getting creative with how to define net, you're right, Dong, that is a huge problem and something that we're very anal retentive about, making sure that it's very specific. And we we debate with companies that all the time and they almost always change it and they realize they're not trying to screw you most of the time. It's just kind of gray. It's like, we can't have this gray because you don't want them to whittle your royalty down to nothing. And it will never be that way if you define net properly. So hopefully that's, that's helpful guys. Um, Tommy says, thank you, Andrew. You're the best. Um, okay, great. I think we just hit the hour guys. Um, had a lot of fun talk for a full hour. Um, I have no problem talking as you guys can tell. Um, I just want to leave you with this. I love leaving on this note. Um, coming up with inventions has either recently or long time ago become part of who you are. Most inventors, it just became part of who you are one day and you just started coming up with ideas. It wasn't a conscious decision even, but, and because you've been thinking about it for a while, it's really important to you. So empower yourself, watch our invent right YouTube channel, which is free Read our books, which is almost free. Do these live chats. If you want to take it to the next level and do our personal coaching or our academy group coaching, we can help you. But you've got to work on your projects. You have to go beyond patents and prototypes and into showing your product to actual companies because nothing can happen until you show your product to a company. And you have to decide where you are with things. Um, you know, early on when people start inventing, you get the warm and fuzzies. You feel great that people are coming up. You're coming up with these ideas. And it's just exciting coming up with ideas and it's just a rush. But then after a while, it starts to become a thorn in your side. You're like, well, if I don't show this to companies, nothing's ever going to happen. And then it starts to become a little bit of an irritant, you know? And just the fact that you guys showed up here for a whole hour to listen to me ramble shows you're willing to take it to the next level. You're not just the, the crazy uncle that's going to tell her family, I came up with this invention and just doesn't have any intention of making any effort. Licensing is one thousandth the work of running a business and selling the product yourself, but it's still work. You got to license it to that one company and then they're going to take it from there. So just the fact that you guys listen to me ramble for an hour shows your, my guess is most of you are willing to take it up to the next level. But whether you're getting help, help from us or somebody else, it's part of who you are. It's important to you. You have to do it. So I encourage you to guys to do it. I know it's not all simple up front, but it's not rocket science. License isn't rocket science, um, but it's work, you know, and my recommendation is to do what I advise all our students to do is to spend two to six hours every week working on your inventions. Now, if you don't know what to do, you could spend five hours and it's a waste of time. But if you really know what to do or you somewhat know what to do from a watching show, it could be a lot more productive than maybe it's been for you in the past with our students. Like when they spend four hours a week, it's spot on. It's super productive because the coach said, do this for this, do that. And they're just like following directions. And then you start to get yourself pumped up and you're doing things you didn't know you could do, but you guys can do that on your own too. So, you know, but spend that two to four hours every week um, working on your inventions, but you know, spending five hours going in complete circles. But I think if you watch our YouTube show, reader books, I don't think you'll be going in complete circles. I think you'll be doing way better than most inventors. So remind everybody to take care, keep inventing, and I'll see you guys next time. See you guys. Bye.